My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. Hello and welcome to the latest Bridges to the Future from the RSA. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Dina Freeman from the Department of Anthropology at the LSE. So Dina, I've kind of said who you are, you're an academic, but is there anything else you want to tell us about yourself before we start talking about your ideas? Yes, I'm a senior visiting fellow in the Department of Anthropology at the London School of Economics. And really, I'm a political anthropologist of globalisation, which is a bit of an unusual thing because anthropologists kind of traditionally go off to far away remote places where they're an outsider and they then kind of integrate a bit and become also to some extent an insider. And then they try and analyse this society by combining this insider and outsider perspective. And this is like what I did in my earlier research when I went and lived in a little village in Ethiopia and tried to understand what was going on there from this insider-outsider perspective. So these days... I kind of like to think of myself as an anthropologist from Mars. And what I mean by that is that I'm really trying now to study global society, the whole world as a one social system. And so as an anthropologist from Mars, I try to find that outsider perspective of someone really being outside and arriving here and just thinking, hmm, why are things like that? And obviously combined with the insider perspective of someone who is actually from Earth after all. So as an anthropologist of globalization, I'm these days not so much looking at any one community or country, but trying to analyze the world system as a whole. That's how I would describe myself. Well, that's fascinating. So, Dina, I'll ask you the question we ask everybody on this podcast, which is, Dina Freeman, what's your big idea for the kind of new era we may be entering into this post-COVID world? So my big idea is that we need to rethink and change the very way that we do globalization. In my recent book, Can Globalization Succeed? I really look at why globalization is the way that it is and what the sort of possibilities of doing globalization differently could be. And I think much of it boils down to the fundamental problem that we have, where we have a global economy, but national level politics. And this basic mismatch is the cause of many of the problems that we face today, whether that's the erosion of democracy in our nation states, whether that's increasing economic inequality, whether it's our inability to deal with climate change or indeed with COVID. These all stem fundamentally from this mismatch of a global economy and national level politics. When you have a system of competing nation states in a sea of global capital, Things just don't work properly. There's no way to coordinate globally to deal with global problems. So if we look at the world this way and we see that there's this mismatch, then there's two obvious solutions. One would be, well, let's deglobalize then. Let's go to a national level way of organizing things. And we see that this is very much the zeitgeist at the moment. There's building nationalism, 
populism, countries are closing their borders, putting up trade tariffs, pulling out of international organizations. There's growing xenophobia, a tendency to sort of blame all our woes on foreigners. And this, in many respects, is very similar to what we see or what we saw in the 1930s after the first period of globalization collapsed. And it didn't really end very well then. It ended in World War II and the Holocaust and so on. So I don't really think this is a good line of travel for us. So the second type of solution, which is much less being discussed today, but I think is much more important, is to indeed change the way that we do globalization. Because ultimately, we are all interconnected economically, ecologically, in many other ways. And with digital technologies increasing, this is just going to increase our interconnections. So really, this notion that we can actually sort of go back and hide behind walls in our nation states, I don't think is very realistic for the future of the world. But what we need to do is change globalization so that it works for everyone and not just for a global elite, which is how it is at the moment. So how do we change globalization? And my book discusses many, many issues and many details. But I think if I were to pull out the two most important points, the first would be that we need to get politics and economics at the same scale. And this means at a largely global scale. So we need some degree of global politics and global regulation and global decision making. And the second point is that this global level needs to be democratic. And this is absolutely fundamental because what we do have at the global or international level at the moment is deeply, deeply undemocratic. So we need to have a democratic level of global politics. And this means both in terms of the relation between different countries. So different countries should all have an equal voice in the decision making, but also about including citizens, citizens from everywhere, world citizens in global decision making whether that's through direct democracy, representative democracy, or some new kind of democracy maybe that we're going to create for this new world, but that somehow or other citizens have a say in the decisions that are going to affect them. So this is fundamental. And this may sound like very big and very impossible. And what can this possibly mean in in the short term? And I think some of the first steps, if you like, would be, well, let's look at the existing international organizations that we have and try and democratize them. So here I would think very strongly of the IMF and the World Bank, which are deeply, deeply non-democratic and basically controlled largely by the US. Let's democratize those. Let's strengthen the very weak organizations that we have at the global level. And here I would think of the World Health Organization as the obvious example, to actually give it some power to do things. And then... There's a question about creating some more international organizations to deal with specific global issues. So we could have a world tax body, for example, maybe at the UN, that would sort out all the problems in our international tax system. We could have a sovereign debt tribunal to help countries that are failing and struggling with sovereign debt. We could have a global court on business and human rights. We could have a world environmental agency to deal with climate change. These, I think, would be the top four on my list. But Dina, intellectually, it's hard to disagree with this. But politically, I mean, it's a complete non-starter, isn't it? I mean, globalization has not been more friendless than it is today, really at any time, arguably, since the 1930s. We have a resurgent right-wing nationalism and also the left has so associated globalization with kind of global financialization, 
global capital that it's in a way was from the left that the kind of first mobilization against globalization first began. So how does it feel to be advocating greater global integration, democracy at a time when almost nobody has a good word for it? Well, I think the problem is the type of globalization that we have. Right. And I think there's actually broad consensus from left and right and center and pretty much everywhere for different reasons that globalization as it is today doesn't work. But then there's a disagreement and different ideas about what the solution is. Okay. And one solution, as I said, is okay, let's deglobalize. But that's only one solution. Surely the other types of solutions are let's change the way we do globalization. Even the anti-globalization movement, the social movements and the struggles united in the World Social Forum in the early 2000s, they weren't against globalization per se. They were against what they called corporate globalization or neoliberal globalization, which is indeed the globalization we have today. Is that the problem, Dina? It's the problem that, in a sense, there are two arguments here. One is the argument for globalization. And fundamentally, that's an argument about sharing sovereignty. And in a sense, if you're arguing for the sharing of sovereignty, what you're saying is, when nations enter into this, they must enter into it knowing they may not always get what they want. But on the other hand, as a progressive thinker and writer, you very much want global institutions to generate progressive outcomes. So in a sense, you want globalization to go in a particular kind of political direction. And is this the challenge, which is that in the end, people only want globalization if globalization is of the kind that they want. And because we all disagree about what we want globalization to generate, it means nobody's actually arguing for it. And in a sense, even when we do argue for it, we argue for it unrealistically, because we argue for the type of globalization that generates the outcomes we want, when actually... The whole point about globalization is it means you have to give up some sovereignty. You're going to have to compromise. Well, I think this is why I focus so much on democracy, because I do believe that if all the world's citizens have a genuine say in how we run the world, and I mean a genuine say, right? And there are many problems with democracy at the nation state now, and there are many types of sort of pseudo-democracy that looks like democracy and isn't really democracy. But if we can build a genuine democracy at the global level, then indeed what the majority of the world's citizens want will be the legitimate form. And obviously, like I'm coming from a progressive stance, and I believe that if the majority of the world's citizens had a genuine say, that they would indeed vote for something that was basically in their best interest for the majority of people. They wouldn't be voting for a corporate-controlled, elite-controlled form of globalization that essentially we have now. But indeed, this is why the democratic element is so fundamental. And do you, as an anthropologist, Dina, do you have confidence that, and this is a compelling idea that you have, and I would argue strongly that deliberative democratic methods would probably be the best way to do this, to bring citizens around the world together, to be able to spend some time thinking through issues. And the RSA is a big advocate of deliberative democratic methods. So I'm with you that it is possible to do this. We're not talking about a kind of global general election, which would probably be pretty unwieldy and difficult, but we're talking about deliberative processes. And we know those can work with people from different countries and different backgrounds. So I'm with you. And I'm with you also in believing that the outcome of such processes will be likely to be thoughtful and progressive. I guess the issue is, would people in the end focus on the needs of the world or would citizens 
in such a fora end up feeling that their responsibility, just as politicians seem to believe, is to fight for their national self-interest rather than to fight for the global self-interest, particularly if what is required for the world involves sacrifices to be made by your nation, which is, of course, the case for most rich world countries. We're not going to solve problems like climate change or hunger unless developed countries are willing, possibly, to make sacrifices, to make a bigger contribution. Well, indeed, that's certainly an issue. But I think if you look within nation states, we are willing to pay tax, for example. It's not a radical thing. So we pay tax and those that are richer are essentially losing out, if you like, because that tax is going to support those who are poorer. And we just take that as an accepted social norm. So I think it's quite possible. It requires a paradigm shift. It requires people to be thinking of we as the world rather than we as our nation. But I think that's quite possible, that if our media were to change and our education system would change, and this is the story and the narrative that is given to people going forward, this is quite possible. The second thing to say on this, though, is that some of the problems that we're facing now really are for all of us. Right? And climate change is the obvious example, and, and COVID really is the obvious example as well. So whereas you might say there's going to be some people who say, OK, I don't care if there are hungry people somewhere far away, that doesn't bother me. If, for example, a COVID vaccine, let's imagine a COVID vaccine was found, it was developed in a capitalist system and it costs a lot to get hold of this vaccine. The end result is that all the rich countries are vaccinated and life goes back to normal. The poor countries, and let's say most of Africa, most of Latin America, large chunks of Southeast Asia, can't afford this vaccine. So COVID is completely endemic there. They have lots of problems of their own, but because it's endemic there and people travel and people do business and so on and so on, COVID will come back into the northern countries as well. And that unless we sort of sort it all out globally, it is going to be a problem for the rich as well. Climate change is like that as well. I mean, you can't sort out climate change in the UK and let, without sorting it out globally. So as we have more floods and more climatic events and more climate refugees and what have you, it becomes more and more obvious that we have to solve this for everyone. And if that means that we have to take some losses in the richer countries, so be it. It will ultimately be in our best interest to do so. The debate about globalisation has also got a kind of class element to it in the sense that it is sometimes argued that middle class educated people are very happy with globalization they fly around the world they have their european holidays they're kind of suspicious of nationalism and the trappings of nationalism and very often it's poorer citizens less well educated citizens who feel much less interested enchanted by globalization feel much more that it's been bad for them and the reason i put it in those terms is the way that you make the case for progressive globalization i have complete sympathy with but i'm one of the people who you would expect to have sympathy with that how would one go about trying to make this argument to those people who voted against brexit or vote for trump or have given bolsonaro in brazil the highest ratings he's ever had you know, these people tapping into a kind of sense amongst poorer communities that globalization is not for them. How would one make an argument that might start to chime with those communities who seem to have turned most against global project? 
Mm, that's a very good question. I think the first thing is that these are the people who have actually been most harmed by globalization, whether they've lost their jobs because manufacturing has been outsourced to other countries or whether indeed they're already living in poorer countries and their governments have no money because the multinational corporations managed to find ways to avoid paying taxes in those countries, or for whatever reason. So these are people who are deeply harmed by the current form of globalization and therefore are entirely rational, basically, in being against the current form of globalization. But what's happened is that the whole media narrative and political narrative that makes it very easy to blame problems on some kind of outsider, right? Whether it was Jews or Muslims or foreigners or whoever it might be. It's a very easy narrative. It hooks into our, some of our sort of natural instincts to be sort of insidery and to hate outsiders and be scared of them. So this group of people have been very much sort of fed, this is the problem and this is the solution. But I think that we can speak to them with you know, that yes, this is indeed the problem, but there are other types of solutions. And do you realize that many of the problems that you are facing now are because of the other class element of globalization? What's happening in our neoliberal corporate globalization is the formation of a global class society, right? We're sort of on the way to that, where you have a transnational elite class you have middle classes around the world that are somewhat similar, but are generally eroding and an increasing, increasing global poor. That whether you're a worker in a sweatshop factory in Southeast Asia or in the north of England, your economic situation and your rights and so on are not that different. But at the moment, those connections haven't been made or are just beginning to be made. Right? There are growing transnational social movements that are indeed linking up farmers from India, with factory workers from China, with indigenous peoples from Latin America, and getting them together. And as they discuss their problems, they are indeed coming to the realization that their problems all stem from the same global issues. Now, if more and more people from this class, if you like, will join these movements, the poor people from the rich countries, if you like, are at the moment not that much interconnected with these other movements which are largely coming from the poorer countries. But as that can connect up more, I think there can be a shared understanding that the problem isn't about foreigners, if you like. The, the problem is actually about the global elite and the power structures of our global system. And once you've made that connection, then it's actually quite easy to move on to, what well, we need to change the system and we need to change the power structures and we need to have a say. So where does change then come from, Dina? Because what, one of the things I found fascinating in your book was you referred to a variety of initiatives like this that have brought together global civil society to try to develop a kind of alternative vision. But I think you say in the book that they unfortunately have found it hard to sustain themselves. And arguably, the reason for that is because if you don't have a direct line into authority, if in the end it doesn't look as though you can actually influence the people who make the decisions, then it becomes a kind of talking shop and we're all very busy and people say, well, this is fine, but it's not making much difference. So what is the thing that might turn this so that those voices aren't in the wilderness? Right. I think you're referring to the World Social Forum, which indeed was set up to be a talking shop. That was kind of its main purpose, because really the first step has to be to get these different groups together to talk to each other and understand each other. So it was quite legitimate that it was a talking shop. Where it got stuck and where I think we need to go forward now 
is how to move from a talking shop into an organized form of political agency. This is a radical new for our society, that we need to have a sort of trans-border or transnational form of political agency, which at the moment doesn't exist. All our political parties are at the national level. There are a few nascent attempts at transnational political parties. Within Europe, there's the European Spring Party that was set up just a year ago to be a transnational political party across different European countries. Uh, it's still very small, not having a big impact, but that might change. And then in the last few months, Bernie Sanders and Yanis Varoufakis have set up the Progressive International, which is a kind of quasi-proto-global political party. It's somewhere between talking shop and political party. Because I think the first stage is bringing people together to create a new shared vision. And once you've got that new shared vision, then you need a form of political agency to bring it about. But at the moment, and I think what my book is also trying to do is to think, well, what actually is the vision? Because we're so stuck in the world how it is today is how it has to be and is somehow natural and normal because it's what we all know. But one of the things about being an anthropologist and where you study all sorts of different cultures and different societies is you realise that hardly anything is natural and normal and has to be that way. There's a huge creativity and people organise things differently all over the place. And likewise, how we organise the world can be different. But we need to have a vision Right, a vision of how would we like to organize the world? There is a process of bringing in a lot of different perspectives, right? It's not something for some wealthy academic in a rich country to come up with. It needs to have discussions with people from all over the world, from different classes and different backgrounds and different cultures, which is what is beginning to happen, to create a vision. And once you've got the vision, then you can get the energy to sort of make it a reality. And I'm not saying that's going to happen overnight, and I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It's a struggle. And I think all political change ultimately is a struggle. But, Deanna, I hear all of that. And, you know, I'm a social scientist by background, as you are. And so, therefore, we're interested in structure and long-term and understanding change in those ways. We don't subscribe to a kind of view of history that it's about individuals so much. But you know, we're running out of time. We're running out of time in this podcast. But of course, much more importantly, we're running out of time in terms of the capacity of the world to respond particularly to the climate emergency. In the end, doesn't the outcome of the American election in a couple of months, isn't that an absolutely critical moment? Isn't it almost impossible to imagine any of your ambitions or aspirations progressing at all if we're about to face another four years of Donald Trump presidency? I sadly have to agree that in the short term, that would be very, very difficult to imagine. But if we do get another four years of Donald Trump presidency, the world at the end of that four years, I believe, will be in such a bad state, sadly, that out of that bad state is often where resistance and energy to change comes from. Sometimes things have to get so bad that they really hurt that people will do something. When it's just kind of quite bad, people put up with it. Well, let's hope we don't have to find out, eh, Dina? That's all I can say. Dina Freeman, it's been fantastic talking to you. Remind us of the name of the book. Can Globalisation Succeed? It's published by Thames and Hudson, and it's a short, exciting read, and I can recommend it. And I'm not just saying that because I'm the series editor. Dina, thanks so much for spending your time with us. 
Thank you very much, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.